Welcome to Womble Perspectives, where we explore a wide range of topics from the latest legal updates to industry trends to the business of law. Our team of lawyers, professionals, and occasional outside guests will take you through the most pressing issues facing businesses today and provide practical and actionable advice to help you navigate the ever-changing legal landscape. With a focus on innovation, collaboration, and client service, we are committed to delivering exceptional value to our clients and to the communities we serve. And now our latest episode. In today's extended episode, we're featuring a fireside chat between Womble Bond Dickinson partner Carrie Bennett and FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr, produced for the Rural Wireless Infrastructure Summit that took place June 26 through 28, 2003, in Park City, Utah. The chat covers several topics, including universal service contribution reform, workforce and labor issues, network resiliency, and supplemental wireless coverage from space. It's clear from the interview that Commissioner Carr has a deep respect for rural communities and recognizes the value that rural wireless carriers bring to the table in deploying broadband services. Please enjoy the following episode. Uh, well, thank you so much for that kind introduction. Uh, I'm really disappointed I can't be with you all uh, in person this year. I truly enjoyed the time uh, last year that I got to spend with you. It's been a busy time, though, uh, in D.C., just coming fresh off a House oversight hearing and a Senate uh, confirmation hearing for another uh, five-year term on the FCC. So uh, given that I was getting the grilling uh, in the Senate, I can uh, assure you that I would have much rather been uh, spending time with you all or, or maybe even getting a root canal uh, for that matter. But uh, actually, the good news was the hearing went uh, pretty smoothly uh, and we're keeping busy in D.C. So thanks again for having me and, and look forward to discussing some of these really important topics with you all. Thank you, Commissioner Carr. We really appreciate you joining us as well. And we are really looking forward to your um, to you being reconfirmed and working with you for another five years. Um, I know our membership really loves working with you, and I think you really get rural America and that's important to them. And we appreciate all you're doing for the rural wireless carriers out there. And we, we, we of course, will never think it's enough. So be patient with us as we come and ask for more things. But um, we'll get started. And I wanted to start on something that's very near and dear to our membership. Um, we are, um, as you're aware, the, most of our members do get universal service support. On the wireless side, they've been getting legacy support for some time. Um, it got ratcheted down back in, I think it was now been 2012, um, down to 60%. And it continues to, to be something that they receive. Um, but there is some concern on the contribution side. And I know you've been very active in working on um, contribution reform. Um, and it's been, I think, about a year and a half, and we talked about this last year since the notice of inquiry concerning universal service reform came out. And we just wanted to hear your thoughts on where you think this is going and what might be happening. Um, so maybe we could turn our attention to the contribution side of the house for a minute. Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, look, I, I believe that we have to have uh, thriving rural <laughs> wireless providers. And there's a lot that we have to do right to make sure that happens. And one of them is contributions reform. And, and frankly, this has just been uh, an issue where there's been an awful lot of uh, can kicking for really too many years. And as you know, one FCC chair uh, moves along and another one comes in, they, they hand them the gavel and a uh, contribution reform docket. And it, it doesn't seem to make much progress since then. 
you know, last August or just after I was with you all last year, the FC did put out a report on the future of USF. And there's a couple of interesting things there. Uh, you know, one is there was a lot of sort of positive citation in the FC report for studies that were looking at ways to fund uh, USF for the future that looks to a lot of the large technology companies that are benefiting from these expenditures. Because, look, the reality is, is that the Universal Service Fund is, is kind of stuck in a death spiral. We had roughly $80 billion in revenues that we were assessing in the early 2000s. Now we're down to $30 billion. Uh, contribution factors gone from 5 or 6% to 30% as a result, and some studies show it could go to 75%. So we really need to take advantage of this moment to act. The good news is there's some increasing momentum in Congress. So Senator Lujan in particular um, has been very active on this. He and I just met in his office a couple of days ago now um, talking about this. So to me, I think the most important thing we can do to stabilize the fund is get legislation passed from Congress that would empower us to assess some of the technology companies that are, are benefiting. I, I just think that's that's something that we have to get done if we're going to have universal service. And maybe there's a, a broader conversation in Congress about that. But if you're starting from the assumption that we're going to have it, we got to stabilize that contribution base. Right. And I, I don't know if you were able to attend Mobile World Congress Barcelona last year, um, but the debate is not just in the U.S., it, the debate is on on big tech versus the you know the the networks. Um, I heard Orange and Deutsche Telekom really talking about how they keep putting more and more money into these networks, and and the beneficiaries are the content providers. But likewise, I heard Netflix get up and say, "Wait a minute." I, my profit margins are a lot less than your profit margins. And I invest a lot of my profits back into the content because I'm producing all this content that consumers want to pay. So maybe, and Netflix was trying to flip the switch here, maybe you network carrier, since I'm driving consumers to use your networks, you should be paying me. Hmm. Um, so I was just, I was just, I don't know if you caught that at, in Barcelona, yeah. but that's a debate on the global stage. And it's not just, U.S. networks complaining about this. Um, it's the you know global carriers as well. So any thoughts? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I was at Mobile World Congress, met with a lot of the, the the players on this, and separately, I've traveled to Brussels a couple of times and met with EU officials to talk about this fair share idea. And yeah, there's some momentum uh, in Europe as well. There's some momentum in, in in South America as well too. I mean, really, the the current system we have in the U.S. operates basically as a wealth transfer from the consumers are paying this today to the large technology companies because this, this funding is effectively paying for their uh, distribution mechanism. So I do think that it's time that we look to pay a fair share. And if we were to go to digital advertising, which is something I've talked a lot about, that's principally Google and Facebook, um, we could do it in a way that doesn't end up having a you know direct consumer-facing sort of line item charge. So there could be some benefits to that as well. Yeah. And I think, I think the idea is it's just not a either or choice. I think there's a a consensus that could be reached among all of the different players in this and, and to the benefit, benefit of the consumer. Um, one of the things, and, and I know we talked a bit about it a little bit at our poolside chat last year, was a concept that RWA raised, which is is really an outside-the-box concept, is like this penny a transaction. And I know you you thought maybe at the time, like, what is that all about? Um, but <laughs> I don't think I've moved that much since then. <laughs> I know. But, but the concept is, you know, again, a consumer is, you know, the consumers are the ones that are driving this. So they're the, you know, the the causer, the, the cost causer, because they want something. 
And the idea right. is if you want something, you should be willing to pay for it. And from a consumer perspective, they're like, well, I'm already paying for broadband. You know, why do I have to pay on top of that? Because you want the content too. And is there some way, or you want, you know, whatever Amazon's delivering to you or or whatever you're purchasing through through using broadband or the internet. Um, so this idea of a small, small little transaction fee, a penny, um, you know, no matter what the cost is, you know, if it's a hundred dollar you know, cost or a you know, 50 cent cost, like a you know, ordering music or something. Um, I don't even know if people still pay for music, to be honest. <laughs> um, so, and any, and maybe that gets back to the advertising that you talked about that the advertising is paying for it or agreeing to, to watch ads. You don't have to pay for things. Um, but the idea is that, you know, that somehow it would be transferred in a different way. And I think getting creative and thinking about these things um, is, is important. But one of the dilemmas I think that scares the bejesus out of folks is that if it gets outside of how we're doing universal service funding right now, and it starts going into the treasury, then how do we make it make make sure that we actually get the funding from treasury back into the universal service fund? And I think a lot of people are really nervous about that, um, including my my members. So yeah, I think, I that's, I think that's right. That. No. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean the the. the Penny transactions just haven't seen that gaining a lot of a lot of traction uh, here in DC. But I do think we need to put you know all options on the table and, and and take a look at these ideas. And you know more broadly, there's other you know funding challenges as well. You know rip and replace uh, is another one that came up a lot uh, this past week in the House Oversight hearing and uh, Senate confirmation hearing. There's a number of bills that would you know plug the hole that we have right now in rip and replace funding, and we just have to get that done. We got to make good. On the promises that we've made, you know, I'm sensitive to the idea that at least in some extreme circumstances, or or maybe not too extreme. I mean, this could be sort of make or break as a business model matter for a lot of small rural wireless players, and you know, that's bad for them. It's bad for their customers. It's also bad for public safety if we're somehow you know blowing holes in coverage as a result of this. So there's some interesting bills out there on that front. You know, Senator uh, Hickenlooper from Colorado and Fisher from Nebraska have a, a good bill. That mm-hmm. would uh, look at reappropriating some of the um, uh, reprogramming some of the COVID dollars for that slug, but you know we're right up against it at this point. With July right around the corner, um, we kind of need one of these bills to to shake loose and, and pass pretty quickly here now. Right, and I think that's something our our our, our WA has endorsed that legislation. Um, that's a good bill. We've, we've called for the House to come up with a companion bill. Um, to match the, their bill. Um, the other uh, legislation that we've been keeping an eye on is the um, auction reauthorization, because with that, there's some more spectrum that's coming you know, in the three dot, I think three dot one band yeah. somewhere around here that yeah. um, we could use that auction to you know designate some of that to do this. But it's it's a little tricky and dicey um, uh, about when, when the FCC is going to get their spectrum reauthorization done. Um, and I know that's true. I mean, that's that's another one where we're sort of really in an unprecedented situation with our auction authority having expired. And again, that's bad for a couple of reasons. I mean, one stops us from conducting new auctions and getting spectrum out there, which we need to do. But also, if you step back and think about you know geopolitics, we've got the World Radio Conference coming up this coming fall, and we're engaged in tons of mini debates with uh, countries that aren't our best uh, allies, and they want spectrum bands to be developed in ways that are going to benefit you know their values and their build out plans and it doesn't really align with ours. So getting that special authority back will help us put a wind at the backs of our negotiators. And more broadly on spectrum, we kind of do a better job at 
um, identifying a pipeline of new spectrum bands for people to use. And I think a lot of that falls on the FCC. I put out a, a spectrum calendar myself that looks at lower three, like you noted, uh, seven gigahertz, um, all the way up to some of the millimeter wave bands. Um, and we really got to get going. I think we made a lot of great progress when I first joined the commission in 2017, but um, we're starting to stall out in terms of getting new spectrum out there. Um, and then obviously when we do spectrum, we got to you know make sure that we do it with respect to you know geographic license sizes and everything that's going to make sense. So we can have a competitive uh, situation when we free that up. Well, I don't know if you can remember in, in the Wayback Machine before we had Spectrum auctions and how we used to assign Spectrum licenses. So without the Spectrum um, reauthorization legislation passing, is there any thought amongst the FCC commissioners to go back to lotteries or comparative <laughs> hearings? <laughs> you know, what, what, one funny historical question, whether we even have like the old, you know, pinball lottery uh, machine, you know, clanking around somewhere in the building. You know, even though we don't have auction authority right now, we can still get spectrum out the door. So one example, for instance, is a 2.5 gigahertz. I know one carrier has a lot of it, but I think there's two carriers uh, at least that have 2.5 licenses that they won at an auction that we conducted a while ago. And we're not issuing them. And I, I think we've gotten sort of mixed signals from the FCC about that. To me, it's pretty clear. We have all the authority we need to issue the licenses won at concluded spectrum auctions, even though we can't conduct a new one. You know, 309A is our authority to issue licenses. It's only our 309J authority that's lapsed. And so even if we just look at those 2.5 licenses, that's, I think, almost 55 million Americans that could get service just virtually overnight because these radios are up, the antennas are up. So I've been speaking out in favor of us doing that. I think we should. But to your point, there's other ways to get licenses out. Um, STAs can be issued. So yeah, we can't conduct auctions, but uh, that doesn't mean we can't identify bands and find ways to free that spectrum up. Although, look, again, hopefully this absence of authority uh, doesn't go on much longer. Right. And and I actually agree with you on the law and, and your point. I, I've seen a lot of that going back and forth, and, and I'm not clear of the other side's argument about why um, we aren't issuing those licenses. But maybe it has to do with the ULS, <laughs> and, it, and you can't you can't issue a license if the ULS isn't working. So that 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 glitch has caused some problems. Is there anything you can share with us? I think it came back online at least briefly, and um, everyone started trying to use it, and I think it crashed again. So is there any long term? No. For the ULS, I think I've been hearing for 20 years that, that that's going to be an overhaul system. And, you know, a lot of our members rely on that and go in and I'm, I'm checking on things and dates and renewals and modifications. And obviously, it's just a big cluster right now. So yeah. um, can you comment on what caused it or how you're dealing with fixing it or what the long term um, uh, ways of maybe working on this will be? Yeah, my team got a, a deeper briefing on this than than me, and they're still, still sort of getting me uh, all the details that they got. So I don't have anything to share sort of more specifically on that. But I agree with you that it's been a long time that we've had issues. In fact, you know, every year we have a budget at the FCC, and they say we need X millions of dollars because we're going to overhaul ULS and fix it. And I'm like, why do we keep asking for money to, to fix ULS and ULS is <laughs> it's never fixed? But you know, the other you. Uh, issue inside the, the FCC building that I've been thinking about is, is USAC. We hear a lot of concerns as well uh, about USAC. Some of uh, the same actually technical USAC system being down. We hear that a lot on ACP 
And then even when systems are up, we have hear concerns about just slowness in USAC responding, uh, maybe inconsistent guidance. And so I'm, I've been tossed around this idea of, you know, should we really think about uh, bringing some of those USACs or all the USAC functionality back inside the FCC? And, and maybe that could promote even greater accountability because, again, the FCC is an independent agency and USAC is, I don't know, quasi-independent, although it's responsible and overseen by us. And I'm just not sure that that's the most efficient way to be doing it. It certainly, I think, would be uh, giving us as commissioners more insight into their operations if we were to bring it in-house. Maybe there's uh, downsides to that that I haven't sort of fully thought through, but I'm open to sort of some fundamental reforms there on USAC, or even if it's just clearer timelines and shot clocks on decision-making there. I continue to hear concerns about their performance. Yes. So I, I appreciate that you're looking into that. And who knows, maybe um, with the next election cycle, um, we'll have a different chairman who will uh, be, be looking into that um, and working on that. And it sounds like you have some good ideas and thoughts on that. Um, I'm going to switch gears on you a little bit and talk about something else that I know is near and dear to your heart, and it's the workforce issues. I know yeah. you recently traveled to Virginia State University for a broadband and 5G work, workforce training event. Um, do you want to talk about what you're seeing as far as the 5G workforce training programs and what needs to happen in the country? Um, and especially, yeah. it's a big issue in, in rural America um, to attract the talent to be in rural America to build that network out. And we're, um, we definitely are facing those kinds of challenges. Um, and some of our um, board members have been working really hard on taking, you know, ex-military and putting them through training programs using technical colleges that are local yeah. to the rural environment. But love to hear your thoughts on that and, and what direction you would see um, the country yeah. going. Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. I mean, look, obviously, I, I try to spend um, a lot of time outside the Beltway in this job. And a lot of it's with, you know, tower crews. And they're just the best of the best, just salt of the earth people. So the most fun I have in this job is spending time with them, getting up towers. Just well, three weeks ago, I was back out in South Dakota, got to climb a 2,000-foot a, a broadcast tower again. Uh, well, take an elevator most of the way up to be to be uh, direct about it. But then there was still some climbing at the end to the top. Um, but there's just nothing that beats spending time with them. And we got to do a better job of um, you know bolstering that workforce clearly. And I've been working on this with community colleges. And to your point, we've learned a couple of secrets of the fire swamp. You know, One is if you can co-locate uh, with a, a a school that is near a military facility, then to your point, that can make it easier to get transitioning service members in. You obviously have to have a, a nearby what I call anchor tower company so that they can both sort of do some teaching and um, and help sort of stand the program up. And you got to be really plugged into the local community because really we got to get to the high schools um, because we've done a good job of standing these programs up. But every once in a while, the flow of new students in dries up and. I've tried to brand a, a pitch for getting into high schools and, and pitching tower climbing, but people tell me that it sends mixed messages. The, the theme would be uh, get high, get paid. But um, <laughs> I'm told that, that that's a mixed metaphor in, in some in some ways. But I don't know. I still think it might be good. Put a poster of that up in the, the high school hallway and you might get some you might get some interest. But but you're right. We got to look to more of these schools. And Commissioner Starks and I, to your point, did go down to uh, uh, the, that you know historic uh, black college, HBCU for a 5G workforce event. And they're, you know, it's a great example of the type of initiatives that we need because we've got about, you know, 27,000 tower climbers now. We got to get about 20,000 and you can produce them through community colleges from eight to 12 weeks. So um, I'm happy to work with anybody that's got an idea. You know, usually when we stood these up successfully, you know, I've done visits there to help sort of pitch it. I've, you know, wrote 
written letters to state governors that are you know responsible for uh, getting funds available for schools. Uh, Nate, the Tower Association has a basically a turnkey curriculum at this point that we can drop in. So if anyone says, "Oh yeah, I got this great community college and it's near my you know the Tower guys that I use," you know, let me know and we'll we'll work to to stand something up. Well, we'll share that for sure with our membership, and um, I'm, I'm sure you won't be stoned for what you said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to switch gears on our last topic, um, and, and we do appreciate all your time. This is a little new for us, and we're digging into it, and it's the uh, supplemental coverage from space proceeding and yeah. how that might affect the 5G fund. Um, so we've seen um, one waiver come out, out out of the commission already, and it's the SpaceX T-Mobile waiver um, to use T-Mobile's um, PCSG block. Um, and then we also noted, and I don't, I don't think this one has come out on public notice yet, um, but, but there's a company called AST and Science and AT&T yeah. have also got a pending waiver that the FCC has not put out on public notice yet. And that one is using the, I think the lower 700 megahertz and the 850 block, where that block, those blocks of spectrum are very mixed. There's a, a lot of our members hold those licenses. So there's co-channel interference issues, potentially adjacent channel um, um, interference issues, potentially. But what I think really grabbed us um, in looking through the waiver is the fact that they are able or they they think they're able or they're going to be able to do 3GPP release 17 at 35 down, three up, which is the standard for the 5G fund. Um, and the concern of our membership is we have interference concerns, but we also have concerns about whether that could just really replete the whole 5G fund to, to um, you know, uh, satellite coverage in uh, rural and remote areas. And I know when the 5G fund came out, um, Chairman Pai and you were really high on that fund and the repurposing of the fund. Sorry, I'm using your- <laughs> I like it, I like it. You're only one state off too. If this was in Colorado, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be really nailing it now. <laughs> so so anyway, I'd like to get your thoughts on that and, and the intersection of the supplemental coverage from space and the 5G fund. If you've had a chance to think about that or, or you know, we're, we're just very curious as to what that will mean going forward, especially to our members who are now required under that order to use all of their legacy support on 5G. And we don't want to see that investment stranded because this is the year that it all has to go to 5G and they're doing it, but they do it. And then we can't get access to future funds. Then we've stranded all of that investment. Yeah, I mean, I think the the 5G fund, you know, obviously sort of as announced has its own sort of set of problems. And I'm just not seeing a ton of, you know, forward momentum at the FCC in terms of sort of infusing uh, additional dollars there sort of separate and apart from um, sort of this space mobile trend. But, you know, we mentioned uh, Barcelona Mobile World Congress earlier, and this really was all the buzz there is this idea of going direct to handset from space. The way I conceive of it is, you know, right now we've got, you know, direct to separate handsets, you know, sat phones, and it's okay. Um, and then we've got, you know, direct to standalone dishes, including Starlink and super high speed, you know, 100 over 20 in many cases. And, you know, the big technology question is, can you can you merge all that and, you know, one device to do truly high speed internet from space? And there's some promising developments there, obviously, but I don't think it's ever going to be, you know, a complete replacement for terrestrial wireless. And so I do think we have to continue to make sure that we have a you know robust, thriving 
terrestrial wireless as we see this um, new technology develop. You know, one of the things that we sort of were mindful of when we saw the FC going down this path was to make sure that even smaller rural guys, say they wanted to, could participate in this trend. There was some, you know, suggestion that we really only want to open up to people that have nationwide footprints. Um, I think that would be a mistake. I think we want to make sure everyone has a fair shot. And then we'll we'll see where it goes. But it's interesting. Um, it's very frothy right now. There's just a ton of talk about it. But I still think we're going to have to take a wait and see in terms of how practically um, it gets it, it gets uh, out there in the market. Right. And one of the things I, I just wanted to follow up on that, it's not the, the supplemental coverage from space, but just the 5G fund in general. One of the things that RWA is, has been working on, we've talked to a lot to the chairwoman's office about it, is a cost model. Um, for the 5G fund to, you know, to set the um, kind of the baseline for what you could um, bid on as far as a reverse auction goes going forward. We're stuck right now. Part of the reason we're stuck is because the maps aren't done and we still have a lot of overstated mobile coverage in the yeah. um, been depicted. Um, we also, I think you're probably aware that, that there was a uh, kind of paths given to not have a professional engineer certify to the uh, wireless maps until at least the third iteration of the maps. And so I think maybe if I had to look into my crystal ball, I think the chairwoman's office and the mapping, that, that all needs to get done. It's probably not going to be done for another mo- uh, year with with respect mm. to the fund, and then it will pick back up again. Um, but meanwhile, like I said, you know, time has gotten away from us and, and all this money is now being spent on, on 5G networks. Um, and the reverse auction is scary to our members because they might not win in a reverse auction and then they might not be able to support the networks that they've built. So I think yeah. the model in looking, you know, kind of forward looking and kind of looking like an ACAM model for wireless. And there's a lot of consolidation that have been going on in the industry. So there's fewer and fewer of these wireless carriers that are getting this legacy support. So it wouldn't be that much money probably going forward to keep them supported if they built out these 5G networks. So I know we'll be in your office visiting you on that. And I, it wasn't really a question. It was more just letting you know a heads up. Yeah. Type. So that well, I, I want to do it. Well, well this, has been, this, has been, this has been fun. Happy to chat some more. I, 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 I don't think I noted at the beginning of, uh, of this Portion of it. Last time we were there, we had a full side chat, which I, I took very literally and was ready uh, for a, a full side chat. Now it's a fireside chat, which um, I understood a lot more intuitively that it, it was more uh, figurative than literal this time. But but either way, I've, I've had fun uh, last year and this year. And again, I'd love to find a way to get back out in person again. Okay, well, I'll just ask you to go ahead and mark your calendar for the end of June next year, 2024. Yes. And Good. we'll have you back out and, and it'll be in Park City and we'll have a blast and maybe we'll get to go hiking. Absolutely. That'd be fun. It'd be a lot of fun. All right. Thank you, Commissioner Carr. We really appreciate you. We appreciate all you do. And um, from from the Rural Wireless Association and Rena, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Womble Perspectives. If you want to learn more about the topics discussed in this episode, please visit the show notes where you can find links to related resources mentioned today. The show notes also have more information about our attorneys who provided today's insights, including ways to reach out to them. Don't forget to subscribe via your podcast player of choice so that you never miss an episode. Thank you again for listening.